0: reviewing lesson eight together here. There's a page for you in notes on page 235 in your lesson packet. All right, so knowing that the end of chapter eight was approaching and it was going to come right up against the beginning of chapter nine, (laughs) It's how numbers work and all that, I knew there would be a challenge um, content-wise, emotional-wise. There's a shift that takes place big big shift did you feel it Mm -hmm. as you were doing your study isn't it great to really not just do bible study but to do like what we're trying and to let the word of christ dwell in us richly because you feel it you ride along with it and you you feel so much closer to it these are verses that you've all heard probably growing up in your life and you're familiar and now you're getting this context and we're going back to the Old Testament and back to Romans and throughout. And there's just such a richness to it. I'm enjoying it a lot. I hope you guys are enjoying it as well. But there's a challenge, and we want to make sure that we get it as we move forward. Because a lot of what happens, I think, for me, and maybe you relate to this as well, is we do get to those familiar verses, and we're like, yeah, 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 I know that. And we bring on to what we what we have. And uh, then we get to the challenging verses, and we're like, yeah, 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 I always skip that one. <laughs> And so the end of Romans 9, obviously um, some big, big challenges. So I'd like to open up my talk here tonight with asking you uh, two questions that we'll hopefully answer as we move through the rest of this study. Number one, does God really work all things together for good? And I'm going to emphasize that word good because I feel like we have a disparate view of good. If we're really honest, My idea of what it would look like good in my life doesn't apparently seem to match up with what God would have. And anybody who's honest and looks around at this world should be able to kind of resonate with that, I think, to some degree. So my version of good, God's version of good, really do all things work together for good, or is this just wishful thinking? Number two, does God predestine to hate some? Mm -hmm and others are going to be loved is that is that really how this all works and if if that's true what are we going to do with that and if it's not true are we misunderstanding because the scripture seems to be pretty clear at the end there of chapter of chapter nine so the idea if you think about it that all things work together for good is not an exclusively biblical idea really All religions, even secular beliefs, have that as a notion, an aspect of their worldview. If you think about it, the idea that in the end, everything's just going to work out okay, isn't just a loose religious belief. It's actually a grasp at finding meaning. It's a grasp at trying to find purpose in this world. And what is this world like? This world is capricious. One child is born healthy. The next is born with a fatal disease. A tornado, this is when we really see how capricious the world can be. Our tornado sweeps through a town and leaves one house next door to the other, one demolished and one perfectly standing, right? This world is harsh. A tsunami comes through and levels a village. A plague kills millions. Evil leaders wage genocidal wars. This is a harsh world and we long for meaning in all of it and we have to have meaning in all of it and i would suggest to you that longing and that desire and that need for meaning is because we were designed to have meaning right i mean that ache that we have that desire that we're seeking for i believe means that meaning is available That God provided for us everything that we need in this world. He's created for us on a physical level. We need oxygen. God provided it. We need sunlight. We got that. We need friendship. God brings it. We need chocolate. There's C's candies. We need, which Glenn did not bring home for me after he left your house. I would just like to say he drove right past C's candies that day. Crying out loud. 35 years of marriage. Someone sent him a memo. Anyway. We need friendship and god brings it right? we need food shelter god provides we need meaning is meaning available can can we have that can we have meaning right we we have to at least have the hope that all of this isn't for nothing and without that hope what is there and even when you talk to your friends who are religious or friends who aren't religious at all and are just um, secular, they have no sense. Again, we have people saying everywhere you know, everything's gonna work out for good. Everything's gonna work out for good. And if you'll notice when you have conversations with people like that who say it, it always involves that exact same hand motion I just did. Everything's gonna work out for good. It's all just gonna work out. We flip our hands around like this, like I don't know how, but it's all gonna happen somehow. Right? And so what I'd love for us as Christians, as women, to be able to do is to be firm with our hands on that. We don't have to flip them around. It's all gonna, I guess, work out. It will all things do. Right? And so after pouring out his heart about the suffering in this world, the anguish that we feel, waiting for our adoption. You know, when you think about that waiting for adoption, if you know anything about adoption, you always hear the word adoption associated with the word process. Have you ever known anyone who's gone to adoption? Just I'm going to adopt. Clicked a button and then the child showed up the next day. Nope. Just really rarely ever happens like that. Like Moses in a basket might be one exception. <laughs> Unless you're getting a child delivered by basket or a store, there's a process, right? Adoption is a process, and we are waiting for our adoption. That's a process. It's sanctification is involved in that. Key in on that. I'm going to get back to that in a minute. But adoption is always a process. The completion of our sanctification, that is the process. And Paul acknowledges that our sorrow and longing is so overwhelming at times that we need an interpreter just to get the words out, right? That interpreter, of course, is the Holy Spirit. The Spirit intercedes with us with groanings. He speaks on our behalf, thankfully, in keeping with God's will. Paul assures us of something that every other religion claims And every worldview, to some degree, I'm sure you're thinking through in your mind going, that's true. Every religion, even secular worldviews, somehow think it's all just going to work out in the end, right? Every worldview teaches this in some degree or another. But why is what Paul says, why is what the Bible says next actually true, as true as the law of gravity? As true as any of the laws that govern our universe. As true as a pair of socks going in and only one (laughs) coming out. Here's laws that govern our universe. True as those are. Mysteries of the universe. We'll ask Jesus about that someday. And while what the world religions offer is wishful thinking. Anchored in nothing more than the wisps of the breath it was spoken in those empty words, what Paul is actually saying is true. Why? Because it's anchored in a past reality as much as it is tethered to a future hope, all right? And that's where we live, on the tension, anchored in that past reality and tethered to a future hope. Mm -hmm. And right there where we are is on that line, okay? So all things work together for good is just six words, four in the Greek, six words pulled out of context, only if God's word is not true. But that's exactly what people tend to do. We pull it out of the context of the Holy Word and we pull it out of the heart of God if we just say that. But Paul didn't just say all things work together for good. Listen he said and we know that all things work together for good that's a no in the greek of experience it's based on everything he's been teaching in romans up to this Mm -hmm. point it's not that all things work together for good and this is all just going to get settled in the end oh it'll get settled in the end all right But we know all things work together for good and we nod and we smile in agreement when our friends, our secular friends, our quasi religious friends say it's all just going to work together for good. And we're like, yeah, well, but you notice when people say that again, that's that body language. And we want to be able to come at it with a firm hand on that. And how do we do that? We know the conviction. We know exactly what it is true because we have the rest of the verse We have the full body of scripture to back all of that up as well. And the rest of the verse wouldn't make any sense either if we did not have the reality that we're anchored in the truth of what's happened and the reality that we're tethered to what is to come. Amen? So as Christians, as women engaging with our friends, our family, our loved ones in this world, we can be firm on that. It's not that it's all just going to work out. It's that it's going to all work out together for good, but those six words are meaningless. Those six words are gibberish without the next 12. All things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Amen. So why is this true? Have you heard the saying, if someone shows you who they are, believe them? Have you heard that before? It's a good saying. Someone tells you who they are, okay. But if they show you who they are, you should believe them, right? Well, that's how we should be with God. Has he shown us who he is? Then believe him. And that's what Paul points out next. Because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. What does it mean that God foreknew and predestined? This is an important point I want to make on this. It's not essential. But I wanna wanna talk a little bit about what this means and what it might mean in different religious experience and denominations as well. Because some teach that we choose God and that God looked through the corridor of time and saw who would believe in him. And so he knew ahead of time. And so he predestined them to be conformed. And if you're sitting here thinking, well, that's me, then God looked through the border of time, saw me, knew I would believe in him. And so he predestined that to happen. Um, we're the ones in that model that cause our salvation to some degree because of our faith. God saw that, God saw <laughs> we would have that faith. So God foreknew, and really it's saying that God foresaw that because he looked through the corridor of time and he foresaw that right so this is what's called a classical arminian view and if you grew up american baptist united methodist wesleyan a pentecostal nazarene all of those denominations hold to that classical view others teach that god chose us that god foreknew who he would love to be his people so he set their destiny for them so foreknew really means for loved like i i picked you and i love you And so then I'm gonna set your destiny according to that. So that would be a Calvinist view, classically Calvinist. So that's gonna be the Presbyterian denominations, a Reformed Baptist, uh, United Church of Christ, just to give you like an anchor somewhere and like, what does church look like? What is, okay. I I believe those two views present a false dilemma and really a false dichotomy. So a false split. Mm -hmm. Neither of those really solve the problem. Because one diminishes the sovereignty of God because I chose and God just saw it down the corridor mm-hmm. of time. And the other diminishes, um, th- diminishes the sovereignty of God and the other diminishes the free will of man because I didn't choose. I was programmed, basically. God set his love on me out there. And by extension, that means he set his hate on other people. We call that double predestination. Mm-hmm. Oh, and just to alert you, There is no way we're having time for Q&A after this talk tonight. (laughs) (laughs) I already knew that going into this, we're going to go right up to the edge and probably a smidge over you. had a good robust chit-chat time in there as well. So I didn't want to take away from that, but I already planned on Q&A. We can do that another time and I'd love to talk to you about it. All right. So I believe this verse is saying that God knew in the sense of loved ahead of time and it has nothing to do with God determining our future or us deciding that we'd choose God. We do choose God. And God chooses us. I I don't think there's a problem in saying both can can happen. Mm -hmm. The reason why isn't just because I said that. (laughs) It's because I believe it's possible for God to create a world where God created a possibility of any world with any potential outcome. And he chose the world and created the world in which that would be the outcome. This is a Molinist view, if you want to look that up, this is a Molinist view, and it relies on the idea that God has middle knowledge. God doesn't have knowledge and then sets it firmly that no one can argue with that, although no one can. He chooses to have relationship with us, which means we do have free will. Mm-hmm. And that particular view is, uh, it, I believe satisfies this idea. So I, w- I won't belabor that, but I want us to know that God knows us in the sense Prino, know for um, knew. In the Semitic languages, that word is know in the sense of Adam and Eve knew each other. Like, hey, hey. All right, that's a, that's a love knowing. <laughs> that's what that means. And that's how God knew us. God loved us ahead of time and he planned that we'd be conformed to the image of his son. He didn't set it. We had nothing to argue about. And the way you can distinguish between that is if God said it in time, ahead of time, then that means he would have to regenerate me first. And then I would be able to confess faith. And I believe that we believe and then we have we begin sanctification because of that process. It flips it if you do it the other way around. So why did God do that? Why did God do that? He wants a big family. It's literally what it says. He does, did it to increase his family, that his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. God wants relationship. That's what we're in. <laughs> all right. Then Paul teaches what we can think of as an unbreakable chain of actions that all end in the, our glorification along with Christ. Now, this model that I wrote about in your Bible study is, is actually used in a classical. Uh, Calvinist view. So, if you go to look it up later and research it more, most of the materials you're going to come across are going to present that as proof of Calvinism. And I'd rather not prove Calvinism. I'd rather prove the Bible, in a sense. <laughs> it's like rather just release the Bible actually and let it prove itself, which I think it does a pretty good job of. So, I I think a plain, simple reading of the text uh, supports that. So, Paul teaches this, and we kind of line it up on this unbreakable chain. Um, along with Christ that we're going to be on. So in the same way that God has made good on the promises to bring forth Christ, we can be confident then he's going to do the same thing and and glorify us as well. All right. Here's what you, those who love God and called according to his purpose, can know then for certain that those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified those he justified, he also glorified This is a a calling in a sense of your mind, but it's also a calling in a sense of you have a calling. It is both on that. So is there anything that can stop the plan of God? That's kind of a dumb question, but let's go ahead and ask it. Is there anything that can stop the plan of God? Paul asks if there is one thing that can be said about these things, here it is. What shall we say then about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Right. If God is for us, who can be against us? He's just laid out all of this rock solid plan, locking it all in. So he's just saying, there's no way that it's going to be broken. Why? Because every action, listen, every action on that list, that chain is welded in place by God. And no action, anything you or I can do is going to break that. But if you look back at that list, What is a big theological term that we've talked about and studied that's not on that list? It's missing. We've studied what it means to be justified. God does that. He makes us righteous. We know that we will be glorified. God does that, right? Predestined. God does that, right? What's missing? Sanctification. Why? Because we participate in that. I have nothing to do with my justification that's god the only thing i did was say yes and then boom he just starts the whole process right and then the sanctification part comes because i participate with the holy spirit in the act of becoming holy righteous living that's on me i'm not going to lose my justification but i need to be sanctified (laughs) so we work through that process so everything on that list signed sealed and delivered is because god's nailed it and sanctification is another process that's not on that solid chain, if you think of it that way. All right. Again, going back to all things working together for good, that saying is literally just a Hallmark card, really. All right. If it's just those words, Paul is saying something so big that we must feel completely overwhelmed by it in the sense that there's just no way that we could possibly doubt that. And what is he so sure of? Why is he so certain? Remember that Paul is in the middle of encouraging believers who are very weary of the suffering and the trials of this world so we're we're getting the only true hope that's possible in light of the reality of what we face on earth. We can have hope because God has known us. We can have hope because God has had a plan for us. We can trust that God will make good on this plan because he has made good on every single promise he's ever made and nothing has stopped him and nothing ever will, amen? And everything God ever did and everything that He ever gave has been for our ultimate good, even though it doesn't feel like it always in the moment, right And what was that ultimate give? What did God do? Well, we know this answer I know, but John 3:16, right? God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And Paul said this, indeed, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, as if there was an option, maybe he could spare his own son. Jesus asked, maybe there could have been an option, but God said no. Jesus went with that plan as well, and he gave him up. For us all how will he not also along with him jesus he already gave us yeah. freely give us all things this reminds me of the idea of the Price Is right show mm-hmm. and you skip all the bidding and you just go right to the showcase mm-hmm. you just get the whole big showcase you don't just get one you get both of them you get both showcases at the end you get everything at the end mm-hmm. how he wouldn't despair his own son he gave us his son how would he not just give us all things really give us all things and our focus is all too often on the other things mm-hmm. the things that we believe god can and should give us i mean we want peace in our heart we we want to be settled we want to be blessed those are not bad things to wish for it's not like we're asking for bad things but listen we have to get this right ladies Christ is the answer. He really legitimately, literally, and completely is the answer. And if that's all we get, that's good enough. Mm -hmm. Christ is the answer. Christ is the prize. Christ is the ultimate. Hebrews 2, we do not see all things under his control, but what? We see Jesus. Mm -hmm. That's my focus. How will he not also give us all things freely? Give us all things he will. We have to keep our eyes on, well, to sound cliche, the prize, the upward calling in Christ Jesus. Amen. So that's the point of the all things. So Paul has three questions and he gives three confident answers. Who will bring a charge against us? Who will condemn us? Who will separate us? The first question, who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. It's like an asked and answered That is the answer. You can't bring a charge against somebody who's righteous. Think of it just in court terms today. You don't bring charges against somebody, legitimately so, who hasn't done anything wrong. You bring charges against unrighteous or wrong behavior. How certain is it that no charge could be brought against us? Well, God's the one who justifies. He's already declared us righteous. How certain is it then that we will not be Condemned. Well, the only reason, the only reason that we would be condemned is if we had sinned and deserved death. Did you hear that? The only reason that we would be condemned is if we sinned and we deserved death. Huh. We did sin. We do deserve death. Wait. Hmm. But Christ is the one who died, and more than that, he was raised who is seated at the right hand. I added the word seated for clarification and just to keep the verbs flowing there, seated at the right hand of God and who is also interceding for us. So Paul brings us to this moment. This is so short. No charge against you, no condemnation. You you didn't even get into court, but just so you know, if you did, there wouldn't be any condemnation, right? He's clarifying all of that. And it's like Paul's anticipating a really anxious doubtful, maybe skeptical person who might be thinking, well, that's all good. And God justified me and Jesus is keeping me from being condemned. But What about the love, man? What about the love? I don't know what it is with a whole lot of people with many of us who struggle with accepting love or sensing love of God. And Paul anticipates that doubt as well, doesn't he? You see, this is that inner accuser who might see trouble or distress or any of the things listed as a sign that God must not love us. Saved, got it. Justified, good. Glorified, okay. But love, you see saved, justified, glorified is very much out there. And it's kind of those big theological terms, isn't it? But love, I know what love is. You, I didn't have to look that up in the dictionary. I did on justification, all the other big, big ones, right? But love, I need that. I feel that. I sense it when I don't have it, right? So Paul goes there ahead of our hearts, and he asks, all right, who will separate us from the love of Christ? The the big stuff is not going to happen. What about the love of Christ? Who's going to separate? Will trouble, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? Who will bring a charge against us? No one. Who will condemn us? No one who will separate us on the love of Christ, no one, nothing, all right? And he recalls this Psalm that that it is a cry out to God when people were really feeling especially picked on by him, and they complained that their situation was not just bad, but they were going through serious trouble because of God. Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake, we encountered death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. And that... Might make anyone doubt God's love. I mean, think about it. You might be able to grasp the bigness and the sovereignty of God, and I get that. It's just all so big and out there. But when it's really close and personal, you're like, wow, this hurts. I don't feel loved. All right. And honestly, it's just not the kind of verse that you're ever gonna find on a mug or a (laughs) t-shirt. Unless, you know, you're on my website. (laughs) If you like the mug, you can uh, order that. I'll have them available later, or maybe a pillow. (laughs) (laughs) We were considered to be shamefully slaughtered, cozy up with that pillow. (laughs) Uh, Drink your coffee out of a nice little warm, comforting thought in your mug. But even if it feels like God himself is against you in light of everything that's happening, Paul does assure us, no. In all these things, we have complete victory through him who loved us. They have complete victory and I love that connection between victory and love. Why? Because Christ's victory was over death. He went to that cross. Why? Out of love. Having <laughs> <I love laughs> fun out there. It's a birthday. I don't I, yeah. <laughs> I'll just talk louder. You can guffaw louder too, about that. Remember, Jesus was <laughs> This is really challenging. <laughs> Jesus was accused of abolishing the law. And he told everyone, I did not come to abolish the law, but to what? Fulfill it to me. All right. And in a twisted way, Jesus has also been falsely accused of abolishing suffering. Think about that. You get saved, you have a prosperous life. Best life now. The reality is in the same way that Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law, he also came not to abolish, but to fulfill suffering. And what does that mean? He gives it meaning. And we need that. We need that meaning. Thank God he gave it meaning by fulfilling that. He came in to move through that. Why? So that we can be conformed to his image. And if he hadn't fulfilled the law, that would be a broken image to be conformed to. If he hadn't fulfilled suffering, that would be a broken image that he wouldn't get us. He wouldn't understand. He would just have been good, capital G, all caps G, good. But didn't really suffer, he wouldn't get that. He wouldn't understand us. Jesus came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And he came not to abolish suffering, but to fulfill it for us. So it does have meaning. If Jesus hadn't fulfilled the law that would be meaningless why what are we prone to do in our life what are the two things that will most often keep people questioning God and they will both come back to the law and suffering Why? if you could take any survey of why people won't believe in God the law here's why because I'm good enough why do I need God that's the law suffering they will deny Jesus for suffering why because this world is evil. And if God really loved us and was all powerful, he could and he would stop it. But Jesus came to fulfill the law, that's settled now, and Jesus came to fulfill suffering. And that answers the problem of evil right there. And this answers the problem of evil within my own heart right there. And both of those are reasons that keep people from coming to God and Jesus fulfilled them all. And then listen to what he says next, as his enthusiasm and as a sense of urgency and he wants us to grasp it and it builds and it grows. And he says, For I am convinced that neither life nor death, nor angels, heavenly rulers, things that are present, things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else. in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. In case you came up to Paul with anything else like, well, what about, you know, Because Paul has just literally finished saying, who will bring a charge? No one. Who will condemn? No one. Who will separate? No one. And I'm sure there's someone out there thinking, well, what if? Mm -hmm. And Paul's like, I'm just going to end this conversation right here and make sure everyone gets the point. Nothing will ever separate us from the love of God. And So chapter 8, verse 1 opens with, with, there is therefore now what? No condemnation. And it ends with what? No separation. Because it's one thing to not be condemned, but what if in the process you get lost and separated? And Paul brings it together. It's not going to happen. You're not going to be condemned and you're probably going to get lost in the process. That's why he quotes from that psalm. They felt really lost. You're going to feel that way, but you're not going to be separated and it reminded me his passion reminded me of david's psalm in psalm 139. david is crying out this beautiful praise to god you created my inmost being where can i go from your spirit if i go up to the heavens you are there if i make my bed in the depths you are there if i rise on the wings of the dawn if i settle on the far side of the sea even there your hand will guide me how precious to me are your thoughts oh god if I could count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. It's so beautiful and poetic, and he's so happy. And it's like all of a sudden, Dave goes, Dave, Dave, hey, my little buddy, Dave. <laughs> maybe. Okay, no. Um, King David. <laughs> In the middle of all of that, he explodes with righteous, maybe self righteous anger, and he says, If only you would slay the wicked, oh God. <laughs> Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent, you know. He gets really upset about that. And I get the sense that Paul kind of has the same epiphany moment right there. He builds it all up and builds it all up and builds it all up. And he's so excited. High debt. Nothing is going to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus, our Lord. And then, boom, chapter 9. <laughs> I'm telling you the truth in Christ, I'm not lying, for my conscience assures me in the Holy Spirit, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. It doesn't stop there, a deep sorrow. Most of us are willing to make a deal with God to get ourselves out of trouble. A lot of people have. You see funny movies about that all the time with guys drowning, oh God, if you'll just save me. You know, and make a deal with God, I promise I'll tie you to the church, I'll do this, I'll be this good, and Paul makes a deal with God, but it's his deal is on behalf of the people that, that he loves. And what has Paul just assured us all that we can know for certain? Will we ever be separated from the love of Christ? Will anything ever separate us? No. And yet, what does Paul say? For I could wish that I myself were accursed, cut off. What does that mean? Separated from Christ for the sake of my people, my fellow countrymen. Who are israelites he says like he knows it's not possible he's just said that i know nothing can separate us from the love of god in christ jesus but if it meant that my people would know his love i would go to hell for that cause that's literally what he means when he says that wow you know moses had that kind of love for his people he said to god yet now if you will forgive their sin but if not i pray blot me out of your book he said which you have written Paul says it, Moses says it. The representative of the law, human terms, and Paul the representative of grace, human terms. But listen, Jesus was actually the only one who not only loved this passionately, but was qualified and able to do it. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, how? By becoming a curse for us, he was the only one who could get anything good done by being separated from the love of God. That's Jesus' love. And in the human terms, we want that. We want the ones that we love to know him. Moses did. Paul did. We do. But Jesus was the only one who could have done it to any effect. Paul's heart is for the unsaved. Moses' heart was for the unsaved. Jesus' heart was for the unsaved as well, but he's the only one who could save. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Why? Because Jesus was the only one who could separate himself from the love of God. And he did it. Paul knows better, but at one time he was as blind as they are. And he pauses here to remind everyone Where God's story began, that God selected out of all the people on earth, one man, Abraham, through whom the Messiah come. And he says that about the Jews, that to them belong the adoption of sons, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple worship and the promises. And make sure I didn't miss the verse to them belong the patriarchs and from them by human descent come the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. So what happened? Why? Why if they had access to all the blessings and all this to look forward to and the great privilege of bringing the Messiah to the world, why reject him? And he anticipates what some might say, well, it's God's fault. Clearly, that's just only the natural logical assumption we could make, why? Because it always is the natural assumption we make. And that's not a new story. The woman you gave me, Adam says, right? It's God's fault. It's a common thought. If God is all knowing, all powerful, all loving, faithful, then couldn't he have just made it happen that his people, the chosen ones, would simply have chosen Jesus? Do we wrestle along those lines too? I mean, why do people reject Jesus? Why is that person in your life that you love still rejecting Jesus? I mean, if you even think about it this way, why did you reject Jesus as long as you did Jesus? I was seven years old. I had committed a lot of crime by then. <laughs> the love of God had redeemed me by the time I was you know, three, a little less of life of crime there. Why do people who have every single advantage still deny him? Why do people who have every great intellect capability live in denial of the reality of God, even though he's clearly fulfilled every uh, possible prophecy? Why do people in their pain reject instead of return to God? He's the only source of true healing and true hope. Is God at fault for all that? Verse six, simply put, it's not as though the word of God has failed. It's not as though the word of God has failed. God's word will not return empty or unfulfilled. It will not fail. And maybe you're familiar with that verse that says God's word will not return void or God's word will not return empty. That's in Isaiah chapter 55. But listen to the verse in context, which is all about the compassion of God calling that his people would seek him The Lord, while he may be found, call on him while he is near, he says, in the same way that rain causes flowers to grow, so my word goes out of my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent. So no, God's word didn't fail. The fulfillment of God's word as promised to Abraham is not dependent on the faithfulness of Israelites. Thank God. (laughs) And honestly, isn't that a relief? What if it was? Consider this. If it were dependent on the faithfulness of Israel to bring forth the word into the world, then it might've been so that it was our faithfulness that brought or didn't bring the word to our loved ones. You would bear blame then if your kid, your family member, your friend doesn't love God. It's on you, right? But that's not the case. It is on God and God hasn't failed. Paul assures us, in a sense, that parking yourself in a garage doesn't make you a car. He puts it a little differently, though. He says, for not all those who are descended from Israel are truly Israel, nor are their children Abraham's true descendants. Rather, through Isaac will your descendants be counted. This means it's not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. Rather, the children of promise are counted as descendants. This is the apostle's way of using a history, history lesson. He's guiding his audience that being from the seed of abraham through physical lineage doesn't mean anyone is guaranteed any of those blessings that was spelled out there it doesn't guarantee any guarantee any eternal blessing being a child of god which comes by faith in god's promise okay verse 9 for this is what the promise declared about a year from now i will return and sarah will have a son not only that but when rebecca had conceived children by one man our ancestor isaac even before they were born, good, uh, were born or had done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose in election would stand not by works, but by his calling. God's choice to fulfill his promise is not based on the impressiveness of the nation. It's not based on the morality of the representative that they even had. It's not based on that. The fulfillment of God's word has never relied on the faithfulness or the morality of the individuals that were chosen to carry it out. You can just read the story of Abraham and see that. <laughs> we're going to do that next year when we study through Genesis. Verse 12, it was said to her, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, and here's the ouch, but Esau I hated. And we read that, of course, with our modern sensibilities, and I hope by doing the study you were able to get some clarification on that and see this is not an emotional hatred or disgust in Esau in that in that regard and that Esau is a representative head of a nation of people and it's a it's a choice that God made to move through the lineage of Jacob and not move through the lineage of Esau. All right. And I, we went through quite a bit. I'm not going to go into that right now. If you're still unclear about that, please let me know. But there was a lot of the material in your Bible study on that data kind of help you understand the context of this word hate in the Bible, which can come off as strong. It is the word hate. That's why it is translated that way. But paraphrases will help kind of soften that a little bit. But it really should, probably should be left as strong as it is so that we do grasp it. So do all things work together for good? No, 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 they don't. They don't. But all things work for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Is there anything that you can do to earn your salvation? No, God does not save us according to our merits. Listen, think about it this way then. God does not save us according to our merits and God does not condemn us according to our demerits. Remember that in junior high when you had a demerit? Okay, whatever, if you were homeschooled, perhaps you didn't get demerits. (laughs) But if God didn't save me because of my good, then he's not condemning me because of my bad. That has to go together. Now, I will be condemned because of my bad, but that's not the priority. The priority wasn't because I'm bad that I got condemned. What's the focus? What's the priority for God? This can't be if I'm super good or super bad. What is the ultimate priority? Christ. (laughs) That's it. God doesn't condemn us. God doesn't save us. Anything focused on Christ is the issue, not anything on me, good or bad. Right? So our response is to do what? When someone shows you who they are, what do you do? You believe them. You believe them. Has God shown us who he is? Yes. We believe him. Do we need to work through our understanding of what that actually means about who God is? Of course we do. The same thing happens with any relationship. You didn't just say, I do, with your husband. You didn't just say, hey, let's be friends with a friend. If you're really truly in relationship, what do you do? Work on that. What does it look like to truly be friends with that person? What does it look like to truly be in marriage relationship with that person? It's the same thing with God. So it's one thing to say, God said it. I believe it. That settles it. (laughs) It's more important for us to work through that and understand it so that we don't come off as trite and simplistic, like a little Christian feel-good Hallmark card to the rest of the world, who's out there saying that basically the same thing that we are. All things work together for good. If we don't really know the weight of that means, And now you have it all. I mean, you've got all of chapter 8 figured out. you got all of chapter 9 practically figured out. You're good to go, right? (laughs) With God's grace, we're getting there. Amen. All right, let's pray. Father God, you are so good. Thank you for helping me through this passage to teach and communicate, understand it for myself. God, thank you for the Holy Spirit who's been our teacher all along. And helps us to understand. And God helps us to be faithful to the truth of your word. And to continue to bring people in our life that need to hear the truth of the gospel. That we're ready and prepared to give it to them. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you that we'll never be separated from that. And on that great good news, we just are in awe of who you are. And we ask that you would continue to bless our efforts in this Bible study going forward. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Hallelujah. Amen.